electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange. This is Conversations with Kelly, where I take a deep dive with an expert on a topic I'm particularly interested in. Today's discussion is with my friend and a familiar face to CNBC viewers, Simeon Siegel. He's a retail analyst at BMO Capital Markets, where he's also a managing director. He covers all the fun names from Mr. Carwash to Lululemon to, yes, Peloton. He recently made news with his provocative take that traditional wholesale may be a better business model than e-commerce. We'll get into that in a moment. But today, let's start with Peloton. He's been bearish on the name for a long time. It's now down 75% from its highs. Is it finally a buy? With that, Simeon, welcome to the podcast. What an intro. By the way, I love that the descriptor of provocative has to do with wholesale and retail and not <laughs> Peloton. That, that, is, that is a nice relief. <laughs> I, I feel like our audience will understand. And by the way, Simeon, we've known each other for so long. We were just talking about like the time that we did Black Friday from the shopping mall like 10 years ago, but how did we meet? Do you remember? We, no, <laughs> but I do remember. Was it just when I was at the that. journal? I, so when you were at the journal, we had a friend who I think may have been at Fortune since we're throwing around competing media names left and right. <laughs> and I think, I think that's what it was. And then we, it was with another friend, Sarah Murray, with yes. another outlet. Um, and I think we all just had a, had a great drink and uh, went from there. That's so funny. I like getting to the age now where it's almost like this is the, like, this is our little generational community. You know what I mean? It, maybe, maybe it should make me feel old on some level. I don't know, but it, it's kind of nice to be like, yeah, we've been covering markets and talking to each other about this stuff for over a decade. Well, I feel like I remember your various versions going from Scribe to online <laughs> at the journal to CMC and I, and I characterize it by different hairstyles. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I, I'd like to say I'm talking about yours, but I guess maybe it's mine too. So <laughs> we are we, different times. <laughs> that is so funny. All right. So with all of that said, let's start with Peloton, which is has, the story that you warned about has basically come to fruition because several months ago when you were bearish on it, you were saying that like, you know, I forget the number exactly, but they were pricing in like millions of subscribers for the next decade that you just didn't think were possible. So Talk about the stock and what you think the deal is now after this whole drama with the Sex and the City video appearance and, um, you know, another downgrade this week. I mean, it's just, it's been a really difficult stretch for them. Yeah, I guess no pun intended there, or maybe it was, but I think that what's so interesting about this one is you've got a company with an amazing product that's triggered such emotional attachment within their community in a way that companies would dream of. And you and I have been talking about this for a while. Peloton's marketing team is, is unparalleled. And, and they showed that this week. So I think what is so interesting here is we watched a story and a theme grow a lot larger than the numbers. And listen, I love, I love the Peloton bike. I use it. I also use the Hydro. I also use the Tonal. I use, there's a lot of products out there that you can use. And they're all doing great things for us. The question has to be at the end of the day, 
what is the company worth? They can't always be worth more. And I think that was the problem. So I think to their credit, the Peloton marketing team did a phenomenal job at telling their story to consumers. They also did a phenomenal job telling their story to investors. And coincidentally or not, that Venn diagram is very overlapping. If we think about the people that invest in Peloton and the people that use the Peloton, there's this great synergy there, which helped as well. So I think what we're seeing now is the recalibration. It's, it's the reversion back to fundamentals, which inevitably should always happen. It does not mean Peloton as a company does not have a future. It doesn't mean that Peloton as a product isn't as great as it was before. It's just acknowledging that at the end of the day, these companies have to be worth something. And that something has to be tied to their fundamental reality. So are we there yet now that they've fallen this much? I think this week there's a big debate happening between I'm starting to hear those who are calling the bottom and saying, okay, now, you know, the, the stock has fallen far enough. And others who say, no, it still doesn't reflect the possibility that, for instance, as one person put it this week, it could be the next GoPro. Yeah. So it's interesting. So despite being, I guess, vocally bearish for a while, I've never been in the GoPro camp because at the end of the day, I do still think they create this emotional attachment. But I think that, and, and I'll say, so we, we have a $45 target, which again, right now looks a bit higher than the stock, but that $45 price target, which has been there for over a year, still accounts for 10 times subscription sales. So I worry we're still very, we're still meaningfully below consensus. So I, I think that we have ongoing cuts ahead. And I think that the biggest problem, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, I, um, and, and, and I do get backlash on this comment, but I think the pandemic increasingly was actually a bad thing for Peloton. Because I think that, thing. yeah, isn't that crazy? Like, it just, it, it sounds so counterintuitive. But if you think about it, Peloton was growing really nicely before COVID hit. And I think if COVID had not hit, Peloton would continue to be growing really nicely. And they would continue to be cultivating the relationship with their consumer, but they would be on a much smaller scale. And so I think the problem here was the company was propelled onto the largest scale, largest stage of the business world. And they started misreading their own, or they started drinking their own Kool-Aid in that the numbers that they were seeing, the strength of the pandemic, when people were trapped at home and there was no competition, the company built a business based on that. And I think the issue is they took the demand, they took 2020 demand, and they bought a manufacturer, they bought a, an equipment provider, they're laying ground domestically to do the same thing. Like they spent a lot of money. And at the same time, they built up a lot of inventory. And the problem is the demand, while still very impressive for a company of their age or, or really kind of any company of their age, it's just so, so much less than it was during the pandemic. And very so now what we saw, sorry, yeah, what we saw is we saw their cash balloon. We saw their cash dwindle at the same time that they put a spotlight on the space and gave a lot of profile to their competitors. So one question I've been wanting to ask you, and I kind of want to ask any analyst in a similar position, but you mentioned that you had, would you say the price target was 45? Yes. Yeah, that you've had that for over a year. So this stock was over 100 for a long time during a season in which you had, you know, Kathy Wood and the ARC Fund, which also has high valuation stocks performing really well, at least into the end of last year, a little bit into the sort of second quarter of this year. You have the meme stocks trading at unglued valuations, but for months and months and months and months. How does it feel emotionally as an analyst to have a $45 price target on a stock where people literally laugh you out of the room and are like, this thing's trading at 100? Like, what are you talking about? I would just be curious if you could talk through what that experience was like personally and if you've been through that a lot before or if this was 
a standout. Do we get drinks on this podcast? <laughs> Do you need one? Yeah. <laughs> send, me, send me some wine. Um, no, listen, I think that you, you and I are friends. And so we'll, we'll decide if what I'm saying sounds realistic or not. But at the end of the day, you have to try and detach emotions, right? We're all, we're all humans. And obviously it's not easy standing ground on a number, but I like, listen, what I like to say is I get plenty of things wrong. This company, every dollar it went higher. I, I, I've gotten things wrong. This had, this looked like the worst call of the career because I wasn't letting go. Right. The reason I wasn't letting go was because the numbers kept emboldening. The numbers kept arguing the case. So how did it feel? It, it was interesting because listen, the same way that I, I don't want to, I don't want anyone to, I'm not rooting for Peloton to fail. So, so like you can ask the counter question, how does it emotionally feel right now? And it just, right now, all I'm trying to do is determine what should it be fundamentally worth. And at the time, yes, it was hard. You and I did a few segments on it at the time as well. But the reality is if the numbers are- Some friend, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like you gotta, you gotta stick with the numbers there and to an extent, take emotions out of this. And it doesn't mean that you don't have them, but I think- the fact that the story took over is probably a function of emotions taking over anyway. So one final question in this vein, and then I want to move on, but do you still have as much faith as ever that markets will ultimately find the right price for a stock? Because we've been through a year in which GameStop is still trading way high. Some of the other meme stocks have come down, but are still trading high you know, innovative RK type names often seem to get this halo effect, you know, do you still think the market is efficient? Oh, that's a question for people a lot smarter than me. Um, what, what I would, so what's interesting, I had a conversation with someone over the weekend. Someone said Peloton dropped on Mr. Big dying. Sorry, spoiler alert. Uh, I was supposed to say that beforehand. Um, that's an indication that tells us that the markets are, are, just, are just crazy, right? The fact that that can take the stock down shows us that the markets make no sense. My reaction was the opposite. My reaction was, that might be the market coming back to reality. That if, if the premise of this idea is no fundamentally driven investor would sell the stock because of a commercial or because of a TV show, well, then that suggests that it's not fundamentally driven investors that are driving that movement, right? That actually suggests that perhaps it's the retail investor or someone that was more attached to the theme than the numbers that's coming that way. So to me, this recalibration and not and not obviously related to um, sex in the city, but looking back from the drop from 170 or thereabout, I think is a vindication or a validation that the numbers have to matter. And so whether it's Peloton or another stock, I would like to believe that the fundamentals do prevail. I guess the the question and going back to the the quote that I'll butcher and the the idea of staying rational, staying irrational longer than you can stay solvent, I guess is very important. Right. But at the end of the day, we, I think you and I both would like to believe that companies and assets should be priced based on their value, not based on their, the, the love of, uh, of kind of a meme stock. Yeah, no, that's, I think, very well said. All right, so let's move along from Peloton, which now, as you say, is a little bit below your price target. So maybe kind of like finding its footing here a little bit. Do you want to offer any final comment on that? I, listen, I, I, I hope... This come, I, I think the interesting thing is connected fitness as a group seems to be reminiscent of when you and I started talking about e-commerce over a decade ago. And I think that e-commerce came, everyone thought it would conquer and there'd be nothing else. And e-com is a very important part of our life, but at less than 20% of sales, so is stores. So the, I think fitness will be an omni story. And I think it's just the beginning. 
And I think you and I still have a long way to talk about Peloton, but we have a long way to talk about the rest of Connected Fitness as well. And I think that's what the next year is going to bring. I think this is going to be a very exciting and interesting sector, but I think it's going to be a sector, not just one company. Okay. So that's the perfect transition to what we, or I think is really the sexy story here. And you kind of get provocative. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about why it's so provocative for you to dare to suggest that wholesale might be a a better business model for retail than e-commerce. What sparked this thought in your mind? Wild, right? (laughs) Um, The seagulls know how to party. So I think what's so interesting is whether it's the largest companies in the world or whether it's the smallest, what we keep hearing is go direct, wholesale's bad. And so what was interesting was if you actually look at the numbers, a lot of companies tell you that the wholesale is a more profitable piece. So my team and I started, not not with any real mission, just to to kind of show what the difference is between direct and wholesale. And the more strings we pulled, the more we found that by by, by shifting to direct, companies did not raise their revenues, they didn't raise their profits. And it was shocking. And it involved a lot of banging my head against the wall because it doesn't seem to make inherent sense. And we can talk about why, but that was the reality. And I think what's important, like I think the message has to be, if you're a big brand, don't just walk away because everyone's telling you to figure out the right level, right? Remember, Omni means more than one channel. It doesn't just mean e-com. But if you're a small brand, don't just say de- uh, wholesale is evil and therefore you're not even going to try it. Because the reason the brands, the biggest brands that are pivoting away, by definition, already embraced and became really big because of wholesale. Why is it that you know people have thought sort of turned up their nose at at wholesale. And I said this on air and I'll say it again. I mean, I find this deeply reassuring in the same way that Peloton's valuation is reassuring now that maybe markets are efficient. What you're describing is reassuring because it says stores have value. Malls have value. Physical real estate has value. This isn't just like digital taking over the world while we're even at the same time talking about the metaverse. So, you know, if I were an owner of a REIT, if I were a landlord in a mall, if I were, you know, a town that depended on revenue from shopping centers. I mean, this is a very reassuring point that you're making here. So, yeah, I love that. So uh, since the beginning of time, there have been creators, there have been users, and there have been distributors or middle people. And the question, the, the, the mantra of DTC is eliminate the middleman because you'll make more money. But the reality is, there's always a reason to have a distributor. So whether you're creating a sweater or creating a song or creating a media, it doesn't matter. Like that's where we've seen the ability to get large and to get profitable. And so I think that to to kind of set the stage, at least the way I was thinking about it, the perception is if I create a sweater and sell it on my own website for $100, I'm obviously going to make more money than if I sell it through a department store for $50, right? That's just math. But the flip side of that is internalizing all the costs that go along with it, if you own the operation, but also the idea that what you're effectively doing is getting a free sales force. So this idea of being able to have a, and and by the way, this, this flipped for me when I was over the summer looking at two different brands at various stages of where they were growing. One of them was talking about how excited they were to go direct and to go international. And one of them was talking about how excited they were to double down on, I think it was Home Depot. And the idea being, here's a physical presence where there's going to be salespeople selling their product for them. So it's this fascinating idea. And I think there's this concern that by giving up distribution, you're giving up your brand control. 
Right. But what I would like to ask every one of those DTC players that then brings in, and by the way, not, not to segue back to Peloton, but every DTC player that brings in an external ad agency, why are you more comfortable giving up your brand storytelling, but you're completely uncomfortable giving up your brand distribution? The point is you have to vet both. So this is, a, let me backtrack for a second, because I was also emphasizing this as kind of a physical versus digital story, but it's not actually. It's about, like you said, direct versus distributors. And distributors can be online. So before I get too excited about this, <laughs> Amazon could be an example of what you're talking about. Maybe it's a little bit different, but would you say that what you're really saying is wholesalers can look to new digital players as well, and maybe you can rattle them off better than I could, who are the new intermediaries. So listen, I think you're absolutely correct. <clears throat> and I think it's both sides. I think you think about a Stitch Fix, which was created a brand new way of curating product that did something that most people didn't think they'd be able to do. And that box business lasted, stretched even further than people originally thought. But that doesn't discount your point about the stores. Because the idea being, what is the value of a, of a wholesaler? The value of a wholesaler is distribution and it's marketing at the same time. <clears throat> you and I have talked about stores being able to market versus e-com. There's a reason cost of acquisition costs so much more online than it does in stores because the rent effectively just helps you tell that story. So it's got to be both. And I think that's the, the important point, this notion of we embraced Omni, but then during the pandemic, Omni sort of just became another word for e-com and that's a mistake. Hmm. Interesting. In this realm, are there a couple of names that you think are getting this mix right and a couple that you think risk getting it wrong to the detriment of their stock performance? Yeah, so that's so a really interesting and good question. So I think that at the end of the day, what I want to see is, listen, you and I have talked about Nike forever, love Nike. I think that companies like Nike and Michael Kors and Ralph Lauren and all the big global brands, I mentioned three, but all the big global brands are basically saying they need to go direct. And what I wonder is whether that's more of, a, of an acknowledgement that some of the, the wholesale business has gotten a little bit too far because I'm not universally saying jump into wholesale. I'm, my point here is don't universally ignore it. And the right wholesale can be very powerful, just like the right ad agency, as we saw with Ryan Reynolds, can be very powerful. So I think what you have to do is you have to know and trust who your partners are. And so this idea of running away <clears throat> from wholesale, I think is a mistake. But what I also think is important is we have yet to see that pivot do anything for profits. And the big story out there across a lot of retail is there's going to be a margin unlock by going direct. I like Nike a lot. I don't think Nike's margin expansion is coming from that realm. I think it's coming from just from, from a, lot of, a lot of other aspects, actually. Um, but then on the flip side of that, what I would also say is you have some smaller companies. You have companies like Aviori, which is fully embracing the, the blend of Omnichannel. Very strong direct business, but also has partners that they trust. So that's why I say on both sides of the spectrum, I think it's important. And, and that's where when I hear companies that are excited about wholesale, I get excited about them. This is going to sound like a really weird one to throw in, but Traeger, which is a smoker, nothing to do with, with apparel, but everything to do with branding, is very interested in continuing to double down on their wholesale presence. And they're very, let's call it opportunistic in terms of grabbing more mindshare. Like, I think that's going to be a very interesting company to watch as they figure out how to benefit from someone else's sales force selling their product, to your point, in real life. 
And that also reminds me of sometimes I've seen these bear cases when people go, oh, I, I saw Traeger at Costco. This, it must be a disaster. They must have no choice but to have to go through that channel, you know, sell the stock. And you're, you're sort of looking at it almost completely the opposite. It's like, yay, they've realized this is like a, a important opportunity for profit margins and growth. I think, I think they would laugh. I think, I think hopefully they, they are going to be part of our audience and they will laugh when they hear that. I, I think that the reality <laughs> is they're sitting here thinking, let other people sell our product and let them do a really good, compelling job. And we're obviously going to be very happy with that. So I also wonder, and then this is my last question in this bucket, and then I want you to kind of freestyle a little bit about retail. But um, if we look at some of the old school distributors, two of the names I've been thinking about with your comments are Macy's and Nordstrom. You know, Nordstrom's been such an awful stock, but there's a, a company I know in town, a small clothing company that's looking to Nordstrom as a wholesale partner, possibly, because they still have that kind of blue ribbon you know, trust that it's not going to hurt their brand image for their merchandise to be found there. So would Nordstrom be a stock or, or, you know, Macy's, but then that's had better performance recently that could benefit from the continued need for these kind of distributors or are the newer players like Stitch Fix going to take away some of that advantage? Love that you brought that up. So Nordstrom is a very valued partner, valued and valuable partner. Whether that, what that means for Nordstrom, what that means for Macy's, that's its own interesting question. But at the end of the day, if you look at the margins, the gross margins for department stores and for most third-party retailers are pretty small because it's exactly the point. They're just not that expensive of, a, of an outlet for these brands. So without knowing which brand you're talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, I would say absolutely consider Nordstrom. And, and again, figuring out how large, I mean, a lot of the brands that you and I know built a story off of growing through Nordstrom. What that means for them will be interesting. I mean, I think that the board of directors in every department store, every third-party retailer, and to your point, in every, every mall, every owner uh, should be using this and screaming it to the heavens that, look, wholesale is good. What we offer you is very compelling. Don't, don't run away. And so to me, when I sit there, I think Nordstrom creates a very compelling partner for the right brand. And I think that what it has to be, none of this should be a broad brushstroke, right? Every brand should decide, are you telling my story effectively? And if you are, I would love to be a partner. Awesome. That, that, yeah, that's, it, that kind of feeds into my last group of questions here, um, which I want to kick off by just saying, do you ever think about, okay, I've covered retail for a decade. Maybe there's some other sector that, you know, time to, Time to drop it and go look at energy. Or you know, um, we moved from wine to tequila. This this was fun. <laughs> no, because I mean, there have been years that have been like winter for retail, and then all of a sudden, so much excitement and so many IPOs and so much change. So, you know, where do you see yourself in terms of covering this space? Do you just think that the experience continues to compound and makes you more and more excited because you're you're better and better at kind of looking for these stories and identifying these stock opportunities? Or at some point do you go, okay, I've kind of mastered this. It's time for something new. So, so when I'm assuming my bosses are going to be listening to this one. So, um, <laughs> when, so if you go back to when we started our friendship and you looked at the companies I covered then versus the companies I cover now, they're not all the same. So the sector is the same, but I've definitely, we've definitely evolved. And, and the idea, like if you said to me, what do I think about my job? I think about my job is to be a discretionary analyst more than a retail analyst. And what I mean by that is True. what I love. 
is I love looking at products that are commodities, that are need-based purchases, that with very clever branding or not, they become want-based purchases. So an oven becomes a Traeger. A pair of pants becomes Lululemon leggings. And a bike becomes a Peloton. And so that creates this phenomenal pricing power. And so the idea of understanding the consumer's psyche, the idea of thinking about why we buy what we buy is fascinating to me. And so I think that I, I will always love focusing on what it is that gets someone to spend more. Am I good at understanding or do I, do I have a, a particular edge in understanding unit velocity in terms of a staple purchase, like how many boxes of cereal people will buy? Not really. But if I think about it from the perspective of this now becomes a brand, this becomes special and why, that I, I, I wake up every morning really excited to do my job. Well, it shows. And that's why I, I wanted to ask because I see that enthusiasm and excitement. And, you know, I love someone who gets as excited about these things as I do when I finally understand them many months or years later and the light bulb also goes on. All right. So with that said, who in the space right now, you mentioned Traeger. Um, I keep bringing up Mr. Carwash just because I love the name and they're clearly being very acquisitive. And I wonder if they are going to kind of like, you know, I don't know if they're redefining the space, like the car wash, the way that, you know, Traeger redefined the grill, but would you give some examples of the stories that you think are underappreciated and might still be a good opportunity for investors? Absolutely. So listen, I go back to, to a, a segment you and I did last year, middle last, like somewhere early in the pandemic where title did COVID actually save retail. And one of the other reasons I love this group is that because we're all consumers, it doesn't matter what we do professionally, we get swept up in our own biases. And what that means is you can go out and say, Victoria's Secret is dead because they're not woke. And Under Armour is a broken brand because you think personally they're not as cool as they used to be. But at the end of the day, if they have each of $5 billion of revenues, they're, they're not broken, they're not dead. And so the fun part of this sector is breaking apart reality, reality from rhetoric and actually let remembering that revenues are important. Some of these really exciting new brands that are growing that are smaller, Ralph Lauren generates their revenues in a few weeks. So I, I like to think, I like to keep myself, and I can be obviously very opinionated, which means I can be very wrong. Um, I like to keep a few guidelines and revenues for me are the perfect measure of external brand buy-in, customer buy-in. Gross margin becomes a measure of external brand perception. So brands are as big as their revenues, they're as worthwhile as their profits. So when I think about that, what I loved was the fact that we got to watch during the pandemic, a few brands wake up to the fact that they had focused on growth for growth's sake and actually were under earning because they were overselling. So what that allowed them to do is recalibrate. What allowed them to do is have this wake up moment and say, I could do less with more. I could do more with less rather. And even though everyone on Wall Street like Simeon is saying, grow, 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 the reality is I can be smaller and I can be better. And I think Victoria's Secret did a phenomenal job at that. I think Under Armour did a really nice job at that. And I think right now we're watching Michael Kors and parent company Capri be a very interesting stock to look at. Really? A comment on that? Because I thought you were going to talk about Gap. Yeah. So listen, the interesting thing about Gap is Gap has been bringing itself back. So it's effectively been doing, to your point, it's a good point, has been shrinking to grow effectively for over a decade, longer than you and I know each other. And their method has more so historically focused on closing stores. Now we obviously have Yeezy and we have a, a focus on elevating the brand. 
But I think the gap has a little bit of a higher hurdle, or at least their, their threshold to walk away to effectively fire customers has been less. You, you and I have heard and talked about supply chain issues for a very long time now. Victoria's Secret bought inventory down 50%. They cut inventory by half before wow. we ever heard the word supply chain. So they made the choice to fire consumers. Everyone else right now is effectively watching higher prices because there are no promotions out there. That's where I'm a little bit more wary on the gaps term, where I don't know how much of it is proactively acknowledging that certain customers are actually dilutive to the brand rather than benefiting from the fact that there's just simply no promotions out there across retail, because what you and I know with certainty is promotions will come back. So then tell us what Coors is doing, and maybe that can be where we close this with, because Capri, um, you know, is one of those names that I just find so boring that people probably, you know, I don't know if they're kind of trying to buy some time behind the scenes to, to pull something off here. I'd be curious what the story is. So boring. Look at that. <laughs> so, well, you know what I mean? It, it's yes, it's yes, so, yes. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times when that ticker comes up, people go Capri, Capri, Capri. Which one is that? Oh, right. The Coors one, you know? With Versace now as well and, and Jimmy Choo. So I think that what they did really well is, and, and listen, the future is not yet written. I think that 1Q21, so the first, let's call it six months of this year, were the absolute perfect time to retail. You had stimulus giving you capacity to spend. You had pent-up demand giving you desire to spend. And the supply chain issue meant anything you were buying was priced through the roof. So it was great. All three of those were about to lap. So the environment's a lot to get more difficult. And the question, I think, the ultimate question is going to be who actually raised pricing power versus who simply saw higher prices. And what Coors said, so what John Idle said on his conference call, so the, I don't know what his official title, the outgoing CEO, incoming executive chair, I think. So what he said on the conference call is when promotions come back, we are not going to play, even if that means we're going to lose out on volume. That I think is a very powerful sentence. I, I as long as he sticks to it, what that means is he's structurally reducing his price elasticity of demand, right? If you and I think about brands, brands have price sensitive shoppers and they have brand loyal shoppers. If you were to raise the price, if Nike were to raise the price of their sweatpants to $400, people would still buy sweatpants. There would be fewer people, but there are people that just are absolutely in love with the swoosh. If you could structurally reduce your price elasticity of demand, if you can minimize how many price sensitive shoppers you are that need promotions, and elevate the amount of brand loyalists, that's where you're going to walk out a winner. And I think at least right now, every indication is Michael Kors has been doing a very nice job at that, at the same time that Versace is really kicking into high gear. That is just so well, it's poetic. Can I describe your you know, comments about retail and discretionary as poetic? Because that's what, that's what comes to mind. <laughs> po poets and students, these are, these are the best things I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Simeon, this has been great, a real a real tour de force of the space. And I just so appreciate your time today. And I'm already excited to talk, whether it's on air or in this format again. It's just, th thanks for all your comments. It's really nice to have you. It is always great to catch up, Kelly. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to follow the Exchange Podcast for more conversations like this and catch our show live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.